going to turn now to um, the reading uh, that Cole is bringing to us. A wonderful passage as we continue 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 25. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 25. Beloved, I urge you as uh, sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honour everyone, love the brotherhood and sisterhood. Fear God, honour the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if for when you sin are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to you this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. We thank God for his word to us. God bless you. Thank you, Terry. So now we're going to turn to that passage we just read, that Terry read for us um, from the, in, uh, from the uh, uh, English Standard Version, ESV. From 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 11 to 25. 11 to 25. In March 1970 Edwin Starr, who's an American performer, he wrote, wrote a song and the most successful song of his career with a lyric written by The Temptations. And it was one of the most successful protest songs that has ever been released. And it became a number one hit in America in 1970. The lyrics go, war? Huh. Yeah. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. I say again, war? Huh? Yeah. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. I always attempt to sing that, but I thought I would never be able to actually do it as good as Edwin Starr did. But you can remember the song, that, that, that song, but once you get it in your mind, it buzzes through. And Peter begins here by telling us 
that his readers, that we as Christians, are in fact at war. And that this war rages around us and that it can damage us if we're not careful to take measures to protect ourselves. He writes, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Verse 11. And then this passage ends in verse 25 by describing Jesus as a shepherd and overseer of our souls. And so this whole passage in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, this whole passage is about our soul and how to protect it during a war that's seeking to destroy us spiritually. We're in a battle and, and that battle is constant and simply wants to bring you down and make you one of the many Christian casualties in this world. To take you out of the fight or even worse, to make you join with the enemy. And so Peter here is speaking about how to be an effective soldier. And the first thing he tells us is this. He says, be smart, be smart. He writes in verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Soldiers, of course, are famous for being smart. You can think of many examples of soldiers parading in, in and around the, the cities and the barracks uh, within our cities around the country. They're famous for polishing boots, of producing toe caps that have a mirrored finish, uh, finish, for sharp creases in their trousers and jackets, and for being able to march in close formation around a playground, performing mass moves with rifle and with bayonet. Now, for some people, they may look at this drill and they may see it as visually pleasing, but it may just seem to be a waste of time. Should not soldiers be drilling in the practice of war rather than on a parade ground and in position? Should they not be all the training in the military to be about fitness, about the ability to fire a rifle, to, to compete in unarmed combat, in tactics and in weapon proficiency? And this example, this uh, argument is in fact used by many recruits in their basic training. They just want to get into the fight and not train for it. But being smart on parade is in fact the first thing soldiers are taught because dress and drill are in fact essential for battle. Soldiers, for example, are taught to ball their boots and to keep clean and polished boots because they protect your feet. Every soldier is an infantier first, and you march upon your feet. Boots that are clean and well-polished are far more waterproof than those that are not, and they help to protect your feet from water and from rot. Foot rot is terrible. It immobilises you. It makes you a casualty. It takes you out of the battle. Drill, in fact, is essential for the way we practice movement and drill comes from the practice of moving mass formations of soldiers around a parade ground so you can move mass formations of soldiers around a battlefield. Two lines of men was the most common battle formation there was, whether that man be carrying a pike or carrying a rifle and a bayonet. It meant you could turn and traverse your unit, your company, your regiment quickly to face a new threat on the battlefield quickly and efficiently. And even simple things like personal hygiene as a soldier. Shaving is critical 
for preventing fungal infections and other complaints that can immobilize a soldier and make him a casualty, especially in hot climates like the desert or in the jungle. In fact, during the Cold War, you know, shaving was critical because you needed good integrity on your, your gas mask. The last thing you want is a gas mask that begins to leak inside a nerve agent environment because you haven't shaved properly and it leaves a hole and brings the chemical into your body, into your mask and into your body and into your lungs. So Peter here is saying that we obey certain principles as Christians because they enable us to live safely. They prevent us becoming a casualty in this war. Looking good, being smart, is not a waste of energy. It has a practical purpose. He writes in verse 12, Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter says, be smart. Live such good lives that people may see your goodness and therefore not believe the gossip about your bad behaviour. Verse 15 says this, for it, is by, for it is God's will, but by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. You see, Christians during the first three centuries were often accused of things they were innocent of. They were persecuted by, first by the Jewish authorities in Israel and then later on by the Roman authorities throughout the Roman Empire because of the lies spread about them. Christians were said to be immoral because they held large feasts for the poor and 60% of the Christian population was made up of slaves. And these people didn't get good food. So once a week, they would have an agape meal, a love feast to ensure people got together, good fellowship and got good food into their bodies. But the pagans and the, the gossips said that these feasts weren't about good food. The love feast was basically an orgy, all about sex, which is a nonsense. Christians were said that they were inbreds. They were the inbred because they called e each other brother and sister, and yet they still seemed to marry, even though they were brother and the sister. They suggested that they were living in sin and having incestuous relationships, that they were inbreds. One of the worst uh, uh, charges against the church was the church was full of people who were barbaric. Why? Because we have the Eucharist, the communion service. And the communion service uses the words drinking the blood and eating the body of Christ. And these gossips said that these, the Christians were barbaric. They, they were cannibals. They ate the flesh and drank the blood of other people, particularly babies. And all these accusations, there was no foundation, no truth in them. They were simply gossip and lies. But it meant that people would look the other way when Christians were being beaten, tortured and eventually killed. After all, they possibly they probably deserved it. They're just immoral, inbreds, barbaric people. Peter is saying here that we should counter the gossip, counter the lives by pure goodness in our lives, living lives of love, lives of goodness. Live such good lives among the pagans, he says, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. In the, this is exactly what Jesus said to us in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your God, glorify your Father in heaven. Does your life shine for Jesus? 
is his life in you, his power in you, his spirit in you, shining brightly in love and goodness in your community. Peter is saying, prove the falseness of, of the lies of the world by showing one and all that you are a moral good person. Do not give in to human passions, but live a blameless and good life. The question is, though, is what are these passions and desires that war against the soul? Well, Paul mentions actually some of them in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19. Here he writes, the acts of the flesh are obvious, he says. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, but those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. These passions not only destroy our reputation, they destroy our soul. They damage who we are as people. They ruin our essence, our basic humanity, by turning us against God and against his kingdom. People must never treat sin lightly. These, uh, the list of um, actions mentioned in, in Galatians chapter 5 are not to be treated lightly. They damage us. They not only damage our reputation and the reputation of the church, they damage our very essence, our souls, making us unfit for the kingdom. Peter says, "Great, take great care, for these things war against the soul. So he says, be smart, be smart. And then he says, be submissive. Be submissive. He writes in verse 13, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the empire, em empire, emperor, or to the supreme authority. This is certainly not a popular message in the 21st century, when everyone and their dog believes they know better and say so on social media. Since Mark Zuckerberg launched Facebook in February 2004, the world has become full of experts. And these experts pontificate and preach on politics, religion, morality, ethics, and the list goes on on Facebook. Submission in the 21st century is pretty much a dirty word. It's a word for, of weakness and collusion. Yet Peter says here that submission is very important for the Christian. As our kingdom is not of this world, and we need to leave, live by the laws of the kingdom of God and not the laws of the kingdom of earth. Peter writes in verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Again, during the early centuries, Christians were cruelly persecuted in many ways as they were considered disloyal to the state. One of the main reasons for this was because they refused to recognise and to worship the emperor as a god. This had become part of Roman practice since the death of Julius Caesar in March 44 BC. So because Christians refused to praise the emperor and to worship the emperor or his image, they were regarded as disloyal, in fact, of being traitors to Rome. And Peter's saying here, we must be submissive to the authorities. We may not be able to worship the emperor, we mustn't worship any other god except the true and the living God. But we must respect the civil authorities. He writes in verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. To everyone, 
love the brothers and the family of believers. Fear God, honour the emperor. And this applies, of course, to paying taxes. Jesus told the apostles in Matthew 22, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So does submission to the state mean that we never disobey the state? Well, of course not. If the rule of law becomes immoral or indeed anti-Christian, then as a believer, we must always obey God over, over man. Peter himself did this. We read about it in the Acts of the Apostle, that when Peter and John are arrested by the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and they are commanded not to preach the gospel, Peter and John both boldly tell this council, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. You can read about this encounter in Acts chapter 4 and verse 19 and following. And then later on, Peter and the other apostles told the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than human beings. So ultimately, our submission and our loyalty is totally to God. But when we can, generally in our lives, we show respect to the authorities as Christians. We, we live in submission to those who are put above us to rule us, the civil authorities, be they a king, an emperor, or a modern day politician. So the second question is this then, what about submitting to bad bosses or unfair rulers? Again, the answer that Peter gives will not be popular in the 21st century. Because Peter says something quite incredible. He writes in verse 18, Slaves, in reverent fear for God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. So we're told to submit even to unfair and bad bosses, those who are unkind, inconsiderate, even cruel. In the early church, around 60% of the church were slaves. But within the Roman Empire, um, it's, it's, it was very different to the slavery we saw in the later part of the centuries, um, the, uh, the 18th, 19th and 20th century. Because many professional people in the Roman Empire were slaves, doctors, musicians, solicitors, those doing high, high grade civil tasks, administrative tasks, were often slaves. But there were very strict rules with the Roman Empire about mistreating slaves, but there were always owners who would do just that. And yet even in this situation, Peter says, they were not to aggravate the situation by becoming rebellious, but to suffer for doing good and overcome darkness by light. This is quite profound because Peter, not long after writing these words, was to be martyred. He was to be killed during the very first Neronian persecution because Peter was writing at the time when Nero was the emperor of Rome. And Nero, during the first five years, did quite well as an emperor. He was quite a good man, but he became deranged and mad, as we know, and went into persecuting Christians in a terrible way. Peter writes in this passage in verses 19, he says, For it's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and enduring it? Peter is saying it's Christ-like to suffer for doing good. He's telling us not to add to evil by joining in, but, but to defeat evil 
by doing good. Some of you will know this story, and I apologise for those who have heard it before, but when I was a, a young airman, a, a young corporal in the Royal Air Force Police in the late 70s and early 80s, I served in Germany, and I came back to faith uh, at the age of 19 in Germany um, in 1979. And I... I my faith was very much on my sleeve. I taught and I spoke about Christian faith and I loved the opportunity of sharing my faith about Jesus. And everyone knew I was a Christian and my nickname was Sparky. And on my particular um, police shift, I mean about 120 policemen on, on, on the shift, I, there was a certain sergeant who was, who was absolutely hated. At the time, the series um, uh, about JR was on, on, on the box and was very popular. I never used to watch it. And his nickname was JR because he was... He was a bit of a bully, and he was just renowned for being very negative and very, he could be quite nasty to people. And he took a dislike to me because I was a Christian, and um, I used to get a lot of really bad jobs. And I remember one occasion I came in um, from my being patrol out in the snow and ice. I was freezing cold, and you, you get an hour break before you had to go back for another two-hour patrol. And I came in, I was freezing cold, and I, and he saw me and said, right, "Sparky, there's is a shovel." And he told me to clear the ice leading up to the police headquarters. So I had to go out there for an hour of my break. Um, and and uh, it was breaking up the ice. It was compacted snow uh, leading up the gate. And it took me the entire bit of my, my break. And I came in. I could hardly... Um, my hands were frozen around the shape of the, sh the shaft of the shovel. And I'd, it was really hard. to run them under cop taps to get blood back into them. And as soon as I finished that... I had to go back out and patrol again, out in the cold. And everyone used to hate this man. So much so that there's loads of gossip about him. And people would sit around having their breaks, slagging off this guy. And it was a great topic of conversation. And during those early days, I got into it as well. I, I slagged him off and I began to be convicted. I felt God's spirit saying to me, you're a Christian, you should be different. And I felt God saying to me, pray for him, pray for him. And so I began to pray for this man. I found it very hard. I didn't want to pray for him. I wanted to swing for him, not pray for him. And um, and you know, he gave me so many bad jobs because he could, because I was a Christian. And over a period of months, many months it was, I saw a real change in that man, the way he regarded me. And eventually he began, rather than just regarding me with disrespect because I was a Christian, he began to respect me as a Christian because he knew that if he gave me a job to do, I would do it the best I could. No matter what the job was, cleaning the toilets, I would do it the best I could. And as a consequence, he began to give me good jobs. And eventually those patrols up and down the wire, as we used to call it, walking the wire with a machine gun for hours on end in the sun, in the rain, in the winter, in the snow and the ice. I began not to do those jobs anymore. He gave me jobs called white patrol, which meant wore, wore my white police hat and, and, and carried a pistol and did patrols around, the, around the, the marriage quarters on my patch or down at the gate, being on the guard into the, into the camp itself. White patrol, much better job. And I began to have much better jobs. And I asked him one day, Sergeant, why do you keep giving me these good jobs? And he said to me, Cole, it's because you're a Christian and I know that you'll only do the best you can. Suddenly my hate for him had been melted in my heart through prayer and that hate has been melted in me, began to melt in him. And when I came to leave and he knew I was going into ministry, he, invite, he, he began to invite me to look after his children as a babysitter. And eventually when I left that camp to leave um, RAF Larbrook and to, to go and train in Glasgow for ministry, he invited me around to his family and I had tea with him and his wife and his children and he gave me a gift to send me on my way. No one else did that for me. 
in the whole of I of love the man that I used to hate and he used to hate me because love had melted that hate. You may say, I can't submit to unfair bosses. I won't submit. But Peter says to us that we don't submit because it makes us feel good. We don't submit because we feel like it. He says in verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. He's saying we do it for God because by doing it for God, God breaks the hate. He breaks for darkness. He makes a change. Our response to the unkindness in the world is not to be of the nature of the world. We're not to add poison to more poison. We're not to pour f uh, flames uh, to fuel on the fire. We are to be different, like we're told in the previous passages, like our Father is different. We are to respond as Jesus would. Paul writes in Colossians 3 verse 17, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the suffering, uh, and if the suffering is because our boss doesn't like us because we're Christians, then what did Jesus say? Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. We're walking in the steps of Jesus. Jesus is not telling us here to be doormats. He is telling us to be doorways. Not doormats, but doorways. Doorways that lead to another way, that lead to another world. We're not to follow the way of this world. Tick for tack. Dog eat dog. Give as good as you get. These ways just lead to more violence, more suffering and more help, hurt. One of my great Christian heroes is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And he knew this. So when he fought the terrible racial injustices in the southern states of America, he led a movement of nonviolence and love. He displayed in his fight for justice the teaching of St. Paul and St. Peter. He famously said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. He also said this, I have decided to stick to love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. Dr. Martin Luther King changed America not by violence, but by love. He began to show a different way he showed his white oppressors love, respect and submission. This is what Peter says. For it's God's will that by doing good you shall silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Verse 15. See, good actions are hard to be argued with. And so this is what Peter is arguing for. He says, be smart. He says, be submissive. And lastly, he tells us, be shaped. Be shaped. He tells us in verse 21, to, you be, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. You see, Jesus has left us an example to follow. His teaching was not merely in his words, but in the way he lived his life. His teaching is in his example. And if we face suffering in this world caused by oppressive people, we are not to react in kind, but we are to respond with love. 
with goodness and with respect. This is how Jesus faced the cross. Peter writes in verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus died for you and me. He hung on the cross for your wrongs and for my wrongs. This was profoundly unfair. And yet he submitted to it, as it was the only way for the price of your sin and mine to be paid for and forgiven. Verse 22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. You see, he knew it was the only way to defeat the evil of this world. The only, that only light can overcome darkness. And only love can overcome hate. You see, if we hate those who hate us, what do we achieve? We just increase the hate. And if we fight those who hurt us as Christians, what do we achieve? Just more violence and hurt. That's not the way of the cross. That's not the way of Jesus. Jesus took the hurt and trusted in God that he would find a way through the pain and the hurt. Verse 23 again. When they held their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And God is a God who judges justly. And one day he will judge everyone justly. You, me, your family, our family, everyone will be judged and come before the judgment throne of God. And Peter is telling us to trust God, to trust in that future, that he will put all the wrongs right at that moment. And he's telling us here that we're, our lives are to be shaped, not by this world, but shaped by Jesus. That, we're, that he is to become our model and our example. I want to close by looking at that word example because it's a very interesting word in the Greek language. It's the word hypogrammas. Hypogrammas. And this word only occurs here in this passage in Peter, in the whole of the Bible. It's a very specific word. It's a word used of teaching young children. And it refers to a method that they used to use in the ancient world, and we in fact still use in our schools today. A hypogrammas was basically, it, when it came to a drawing, it was a line drawing that the child had to copy exactly using their stylus or their pen. It stood there and they drew the lines drawing out exactly as it was. Or when they were learning their letters, the hypogrammas was a series of letters laid out uh, above their, 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 their piece of papyrus or their, their piece of paper. And they had to copy the letters exactly as they were written above their paper or their papyrus. The hypogrammas was the exact, the ideal, the perfect example. And the role of a pupil was to copy it exactly to achieve that on their own paper. And Jesus is our example. We're to copy him on our own paper, in our own context, in our own street, in our own place of work. The world may give violence for violence and hate for hate and strike for strike and blow for blow. 
But Jesus did not retaliate. But he cried out from the cross and to his murderers. He shouted, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they are doing. And this is the way to fight against the war, against the soul. It is to be smart. It is to be submissive. It is to be shaped. If the world was full of Jesus-shaped people, what a beautiful world it would be. No more war. No more violence. No more pain. That's a glimpse of heaven. And you and I are required to bring that heaven to this earth.